Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall and a very special guest this week. Uh, a voice from the past but certainly someone in the present of the show is editor Jack Mills is here with us today. Gentlemen, how are you both? Well, I don't want to fight for attention, so I'm just going to go ahead and step right in. Uh, yeah, good, man. Good to be back. And as you've already mentioned, Jack's on the show. Happy to have Jack on the show, a third voice, and a guy who's appeared on the show before a number of times, but since then has been in the background, pulling the strings, pressing the buttons, and making us sound, hopefully, a little bit less shit. So thanks for that, Jack. Um, <laughs> how are you doing now that about three years have passed since your last appearance? <laughs> I'm doing really well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me back. It's really quite pleasant to be on this side of the microphone, actually, and uh, not staring on my computer for several hours trying to uh, get your voices to sound beautiful. So, oh, uh, that's still to come. Don't worry, we're not <laughs> yeah, depriving still got that you of that. Job to do definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm quite excited to be on and actually talk about some films again. Um, I think this is the first show I've been on since episode 100, so quite a few down the line, actually. So. Not that you're counting. Not that you've been counting, right, of course, it obviously. Right, it peaked at 100. It's been a slide <laughs> since then. We need you to pick it back up, you know, take us in the right the right direction ahead of episode 200, I guess, which is the be- next big landmark for the Strangest podcast. Uh, guys, are we doing, we're doing like basically a normal show this week, aren't we? I mean, normal except for one thing, um, I guess, which is that you, you've already become accustomed to the fact that we do feature reviews or double feature reviews when we're feeling a bit, you know, racy and we want to cover two films in a bit more depth and talk about them for a bit longer. This week, we've gone absolutely berserk. We've lost all sense and reason. And we're going to do a triple What bill did you say? Are we doing a, a triple reviews. bill? There's like I need the these, I need a big red button that says just triple bill and like a siren goes off. I think that would be triple bill. Uh, but yeah, we'll be doing a triple bill. This is basically because we've got three, I wouldn't say massive releases, but like moderately interesting releases. I'm really selling it uh, for this week's show. The conversation will be uh, fascinating, but we're going to get to The Old Guard. That's the new Charlize Theron movie, which has premiered on Netflix. We're also going to get to Greyhound, the new one with Tom Hanks aboard a uh, military ship, naval ship, uh, as captain there during the Second World War. And we are going to get to The King of Staten Island. Island, which is the sort of semi-autobiographical story of Pete Davidson's come up. Uh, but all of that in due course. Before that, we're going to do uh, the usual sections of the show. We might put in stream team if we're feeling like it when we get round to the sort of pre-features section. But before that, we'll have popcorn movies. Of course, Jack's going to jump in on popcorn movies too. And before that, in the foyer, we step into the foyer and we talk a little bit about some news stories as you know from the world of film as much as it still exists at this strange point that we find ourselves at in history so Paul you're usually quite good at kicking off this section what have you got this week film news wise uh this week I noticed that the um there's an uncharted film coming I think we've probably talked about this this has probably been planning in the planning stages almost as long as Strangers in a Cinema has been running I think this film um, and it's gone through three uh, multiple different directors I think different casting choices but it is coming and today I believe it was today or possibly yesterday was the first day of shooting with Tom Holland in the role of Nathan Drake um, so the Uncharted movie is coming um, maybe it'll, I guess 
I guess Detective Pokemon was probably a half-decent comic book film. Whether this will be any good or not, I don't know. Um, guys, I know you're both fairly keen gamers, like myself. Um, what do we think of Tom Holland as Nathan Drake? I would say that... Um... You go, Jack, because I've got words to say about... I've got words to say about Sully. So tell okay. us about Nathan Drake and Tom Holland. I think, personally, he's, he's too young to actually portray Nathan Drake. Uh, Nathan Drake's a fairly gristled character within the... Um, games but you know he might prove me wrong he might be really good um it'd be interesting to see what parts of uncharted they've um actually started recording so what storylines they've taken from the actual games and how that's going to be constructed pete what were you saying Oh, well, just the thing that stands out like a sort of sore thumb here when you look at the initial casting news on this project is that Victor Sullivan, or Sully to fans, is going to be played by Mark Wahlberg. And I've not got any real axe to grind with Mark Wahlberg, except for the fact that he could stop making the same Peter Berg American hero movie again and again every two years. But that's not right, is it, Paul? No. Victor I, I Sullivan, Mark Wahlberg. I don't think it is in the slightest, to be honest. I just think... I, I I don't get I don't get why they've done this. I mean, I guess they want to cast younger and do an origin story for for to, I guess to extend the franchise. But as any I don't know if anyone's seen the Uncharted live action fan film uh, directed by a guy called Alan Ungar. Has anyone seen this? It's superb. No. It stars the person who should play Nathan Drake, which is Nathan Fillion as Nathan Drake. He's brilliant. He looks the part. Like I almost thought every time I play this, I just think I'm playing a game as Nathan Fillion. Then you've got Stephen Lang as Sully, which works remarkably well. Um, I just don't think you should be look. They should have just looked at this fan film and gone. There it is. We'll make that into a feature. <laughs> it's, if you haven't seen it, guys, honestly, it's, it's genuinely really, really good. Um, it's doing the rounds mm. on YouTube. It looks great. It's got a budget. Um, obviously, it's got budgets. It's got a cast. I don't really get where they're going with this. I, I, I don't mind Tom Holland as an actor. I just don't really see. I guess they're just trying to make another, another young Indiana Jones franchise with Tom Holland in it. I, 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 I've got a horrible feeling this will only probably share the name of the video game and the characters and very little else with it, but we'll see. Yeah, and I mean, you look around a little bit, obviously with any project like this, at casting news, but also at who's handling direction. And this is Ruben Fleischer that we know, you know, on the positive end from Zombieland, on the negative end from Zombieland <laughs> Double Tap, uh, or, you know, uh, things like Gangster Squad, which was entirely forgettable, 30 minutes or less, uh, ditto. Um, yeah, projects that don't necessarily stand out for being super distinctive, um, Venom, cough. Uh, yeah, maybe not the director who fills you with a sort of sense of exhilaration or excitement. Because I think on this show, you know, the three of us, the three of us here, are all pretty major Uncharted fans in terms of the gaming franchise, right? And this is—I don't want to get like fanboyish um, because I don't really go in for that stuff. But at the same time, this feels a little bit like a one that I don't want them to fuck up. And it feels like maybe they're going to fuck Are it up. Are they not close Jack. enough to films in their own right to not warrant a movie, though? That would be my other be my question question back at you guys, I guess. That is true, yeah. actually. Yeah. I, you know, the last one, the fourth one, yeah, is just beautiful. It's like a really short game, but actually, you do, and I think nowadays you do feel like you're playing within a film, and it gives that sort of reality. So for me, mm. I think. I will just stick with the games. I probably won't even bother to to watch the film, if I'm honest. But 
But you mean you mean Lost Legacy was short because Uncharted Four went on for about seventeen years, but uh, was really good, like really really good. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. Like we would all feel like I've already seen Uncharted. Yeah, you know, I've seen Uncharted the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, and indeed the fifth sort of smaller one. Um, so yeah, maybe unnecessary. But even so, I mean, like when they made that um, Tomb Raider, Lara Croft movie a few years ago, which I've rewatched a couple of times since, it's okay, it's fine. Uh, she's good, uh, Alicia Vikander's good in it. But it still felt like it was handled with a reasonable amount of care, reasonable amount of mm. care. Nothing that we got particularly excited about, I don't think, on the show. But yeah, hopefully this goes at least above the sort of minimum bar for performance on a video game adaptation. Although that bar is incredibly low. I mean, historically incredibly low. So we'll see. 2021, apparently. So we don't have to wait that long. But then nothing's set in stone at this point. With you might say that the release date at this point is somewhat uncharted. (laughs) You you may well say that. You may well say that. Uh, cool. I think they should have interactive parts in it where you have to solve really rudimentary puzzles <laughs> on your smartphone by like putting symbols into a line. Or might whatever. as well be VR then, surely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I- I'm down. Let's let's do it. Get on the phone to Fleischer. We've got some ideas. Uh, Paul, what else have we got news-wise this week? Uh, Parasite's been re-released uh, later this month in cinemas where they're available uh, and on, I think, Curzon Home Cinema, uh, but in a black and white version. Uh, which will be intriguing. Uh, I'm always intrigued by black and white versions. I think, in my experience, it's worked. Probably, I just about prefer the black and white version of Fury Road, I have to say, because um, it adds a sense of bleakness to it. Parasite in black and white will be interesting. So, yeah, I'm going for more Parasite. I'm always intrigued by, by black and white versions of films. Um, I don't know enough about this version. I literally saw that news just before we came on the show. So if anyone's got anything to add, you are more than welcome. I don't know whether that was his intention to always shoot in black and white or not. Um, any thoughts on this one, guys? I don't remember Parasite being a particularly lush, rich colour palette. Um, not, no. And it's not a criticism in the slightest, but a lot of it is quite stark and sort of grayscale. And, and uh, so for that reason, I'm not out. But I'm just not that excited about getting in. Like rewatching Parasite is an exciting prospect for me, but I don't know if I'm going to be rushing for a black and white version. No, Whereas the not dramatic difference, as soon as yeah, you the Mad Max comparison, like you were saying, um, the Mad Max version that came out, which didn't it have like some really cool name as well. That Mud and Chrome, I think. Yeah, exactly. I rest <laughs> <Yeah>. my case. <laughs> uh, yeah, like that was starkly different, wasn't it, from all of the the bright colours of the original uh, yeah. release of that film. Jack, are you are you in for? You, you've seen Parasite at this uh, point. I haven't actually, unfortunately. I need to. Oh well, yeah. you've got both. You've got both versions to pick. So okay, no, but this is interesting though. Would you go full colour version or black and white version first for this sort of lauded? Uh, Oscar winning I think movie. I would have to see it in its original format first and then sort of make that decision afterwards but like when thinking about sort of black and white films the only one that really stood out for me recently was probably Logan when they did that in black and white but then also mm. The Lighthouse which was obviously filmed for black and white was was solid yeah. and if they made a colour version of that I just I don't think that would work for that film so yeah I think yeah. Once I've seen it, then I can make that decision. 
Yeah, well, we'll have to cycle back to having you on the show when you do your review of the black and white version versus the colour version or <laughs> whichever 20, one you've chosen to watch. Up, up 2027, <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good time scale for me. To yeah. Um, we don't have to wait that long. This is my segue here. We don't have to wait that long for the latest from Richard Linklater, which I wanted to bring to the table today. Uh, Richard Linklater, of course, the visionary director of, of things like uh, Boyhood um, and, and many, many others and uh, Waking Life that we were talking about earlier before we started actually recording this show, um, uh, Scanner Darkly and so on and so forth. Uh, he has a new project in the works that I believe they've now completed uh, the live action primary photography on. This one is called Apollo. 10 and a half and from what I gather from the little empire write-up that I have in front of me this is a sort of combination of the telling of the 1969 moon landing from the sort of realistic point of view of a child living close to NASA at the time and then a kind of wish fulfillment fantasy about the possibility of that child being plucked from obscurity and having the chance to go to space. Richard Linklater tackles space and the emotions that go with it. Are we in? Are we out? How do we feel? In. I'm going to dig out my tweed jacket and converse for this one. (laughs) (laughs) dig them out they're on hangers in your room ready to go at a a moment's notice jack jack are you high on the idea of link later doing space i'm pretty high up uh, on this one i love i love a scanner darkly so anything that he does i'm i'm game for so yeah definitely the the promise of 3d graphics brought into a live action shoot um link later being a bit creative i mean i said when we were talking about this off air and first heard the announcement like go go ahead and rotoscope the shit out of this thing you know as far as i'm concerned because i love those link later movies that use that technique but i think it's going a different way it sounds like a sort of live action hybridy thing um but cool uh definitely cool and a director that we have sort of raved about i would say when we've covered him on on the show up to now uh, uh everyone 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 what's the movie paul everyone gets some everyone wants to get some everyone what's that movie everyone wants some isn't it everyone wants some yeah i think you're that right film that we love i film that we raved about I, know, all the time. I, I really like that movie i just i like it so much that i've gone do lally and can't remember what it's actually called <laughs> but uh yeah any more news for the week paul yeah, no that's it for me cool well in that case we'll take a little break jack will insert some magic in the edit and we'll be back right after that with the section of the show that we lovingly refer to as popcorn movies right after this Right, back we are with Popcorn Movies. Um, this is the section of the show where we talk about anything we've seen in the last however many days it's been since the last po- last podcast, which is a few. Again, uh, I'm sorry, it's all on me. Um, yeah, so however long it's been. So yeah, so um, Jack, as you're the guest, do you want to go first on this section? What have you been watching? Wow. Um, <laughs> okay, so obviously since the last podcast I was on, I've probably watched about 300 films. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to think which ones I could pick. I'm just going to start with a few, if that's okay, if I can just talk about a couple of films rather than do like full reviews, just go into them. Um, So obviously over lockdown, we've all obviously been sat on our sofas and the best thing to do is put a film on. Um, So I have been watching, the last film I watched was Honey Boy. Um, Have you, either of you seen Honey Boy before? No, I'm keen to, but I haven't caught up with it yet. I have I have also yet to catch up with it. This is Shia LaBeouf. This isn't is it? Shia LaBeouf, yeah. Um, and for me, like he is an outstanding actor. Maybe he's done a few things that were questionable, 
but I thought this was great because he wrote it personally and I think he was in um, rehab when he wrote it and it's a lot about his relationship between him and his father when he was sort of doing child acting. His performance in this is absolutely mind-blowing and then I watched some videos of his dad as well and he's got it spot on. Um, it was quite a sad film as well and I found... Um, so does he play the father? He plays the father he figure. He plays the father so, figure, yeah, yeah. Um, right, okay, yeah. And he gets that pretty pretty correct and i think he was a vietnam veteran and obviously that sort of post-traumatic stress from that was then passed on to charlotte booth when he was a kid um did did you see sorry to butt in jack did you see the peanut butter falcon yes that was right that was great was that his debut no that wasn't his debut direction was it I think that was Honey Boy. No, but no, it just came to mind. Well, partly because it's a recent Charlotte project and also because of the fact that he takes a sort of fatherly role in it, albeit he's not actually the father of the kid that he's trekking about with. But sorry, yeah, carry on with Honey Boy. And I think, yeah, that came, watching this film sort of came off watching Peanut Butter Falcon that actually I could get on really well with watching him on screen again. Because for a while, it just I just couldn't get into his films. You know, obviously, like his Transformers phase, which... Uh, Co- coincidence bit... or not, Jack, but with a bit of time in lockdown and a bit more facial hair than the last time I saw you, I don't know if Paul can back me up, but I think you might be starting to look a little bit like Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> what? I don't think it's an accident, to be honest. I, don't think I think the affection fact, for the actor has sort of bled into your personal yeah. style. Well, maybe it has. I think he's yeah. taken this, taken this one step too far. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's a compliment. He's a handsome man. You know, he's a heartthrob to many. It's not the first time either, to be fair, that I've been yeah. <laughs> called Shia yeah. Booth. I think you need to need to work on your traps a little bit, though, compared to Shia. has got traps for days. Oh, okay. So uh, I think you need to work on those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another film that I watched recently was The Days of Bagnold Summer. Yeah, so this was a directional debut from Will from The Inbetweeners, which caught my attention quite a lot, actually, because he's, you know, a fan favourite for a long time. Um, It was a bit of a weird film. It sort of reminded me of my younger years, sort of being that outsider and then sort of finding something that you really enjoyed and sort of taking ownership of that. Um, The performance between... uh, the boy and his mother, I can't remember what the characters are called, but it was just, yeah, really good. Um, yeah, that's that's about it from me. Uh, I'll give you a go now to speak. Of course. Right. Paul, do you want to go next or shall I jump in? No, you can jump in, okay. Pete. You can jump um, in. Well, we'll maybe go. I'll take Jack's lead then and just cram my two together because I'm just going to cover two things this week and then I'll pass you the baton, Paul. Um, I've got for you, first of all, something that, that I, to be honest, I could not even talk about. Uh, it is Fast and Furious 8, otherwise called Fate, other, otherwise called The Fate of the Furious. Who knows? Uh, there's so many titles for such a mediocre movie. Uh, the guy who uh, sort of uh, looks <laughs> as if he's dyslexic when writing his own name, F. Gary Gray, the director here, uh, this is a lot worse than I remember it being. Um, I remember when we did the review, Paul, that I was definitely the one who was a little bit hot on Fast and Furious 8. And you were like, yeah, it's not it's not that good, though, is it? And I was like, no, come on, man. Where's your sense of fun? The remote control cars thing. That was really good. Yeah, it's yeah. it's one I of those well, that worry. I think <laughs> I, I can't put it better than saying like it just um, it's like a kind of meringue that just falls in on itself once it's outside of the cinema 
uh, in the cinema. I think I saw it in IMAX. I think, I think 2D IMAX, but certainly IMAX. And so it was so bombastic and in your face, you get wrapped up in like the engine sound and the whole, like just the velocity of the thing carries you along. When watching it at home, you watch it as a film, a little bit at arm's length and not so engulfed in what's going on on screen. And you start to pull it apart a bit more and genuinely not very good. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's a, it's kind of tedious. It hangs around too long. The set pieces, which were so great on a big screen, are all right on a small screen. You realise some of the gags that were kind of cringy at the cinema are even worse than that at home. Um, it was weird as well for me as an experience of seeing Michelle Rodriguez for the first time on film since seeing her in that gender transition uh, mob movie that I told you about. Uh, oh, yeah. So that was a bit weird because I've developed some kind of, I don't know what it is, I'm in therapy for it, uh, my relationship with Mich uh, Michelle Rodriguez and her image now. But uh, yeah, Fast and Furious 8 is not a good film, but I think in the canon of the Fast and Furious movies, it's probably still top half, maybe. Um, but that's as far... I mean, there are some pretty bad films in there. I think it's the IMAX effect, because I watched had this with yeah. the Battle Angel, I watched that in IMAX, and thought, yeah. this isn't as bad as everyone's making out to be. Watched it at home, and struggled to get through it. Yeah. I was just like, this is just bad. So I think IMAX makes everything 20% better, so I'm not sure it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. just I mean, avoid it's the, it. It's but it's the kind you. of movie we should know this. And I, <laughs> to be honest, did know it. It was just one of those nights we wanted to watch some like big, dumb fun. And uh, and yeah, catch a movie like this in the cinema or don't catch it at all is, is my advice. Or, you know, spend tens of thousands of pounds on your cinematic setup at home and then, you know, have at it. Uh, the other one for this week is not even a film. This is how terrible I've been at preparing film reviews for this show. Uh, it's a TV series. This series currently on Netflix... Uh, a lot a bit of bluster around the release of this one, uh, coming as it is from Tony Ayres and Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett seems to be here a real creative force behind the project making its way to the small screen, I guess we could say. It's a six-part miniseries that tells the story of an Australian or Australia-based detention centre for uh, illegal aliens or those who are stateless, as the title suggests. So um, what it does is a kind of... Um, you know that thing that happened around the 2000s where every story had to be about how we're all basically together, uh, we're all the same because our stories intertwine, you know? These were like loads of movies for a while. Yeah. It's one of those. So you've got, on the one hand, this story that's a bit Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene-ish, which is about... Sorry, what's this called, Pete? It's called Stateless. Stateless, sorry. You probably did say that. I just missed it. Yeah, Stateless. Uh, the, the lead character played by uh, Yvonne Strahovski is uh, in a cult of some kind. We, we realise quite quickly that it's a cult, uh, heading up this cult, uh, Kate Blanchett and Dominic West characters. And it, it's somewhat interesting. It's somewhat distracting. I like films that are about cults and kind of um, cult of personality stuff. Dominic West is this sort of enigmatic, um, very uh, charismatic figure who draws people in. They seem to attend dance classes, but then all of it gets a bit like you're a teacher and a leader, you know, like in uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene and like, the, you know, the people there are transformed. So far, like, so interesting, that part. But then we've also got in the detention centre um, asylum seekers where they have had to take a treacherous journey across the ocean in order to reach Australia. Completely different tone. And then we've got the story of the security guards at the detention centre, headed up by Paul, and you'll enjoy this, the fantastic uh, action star Jai Courtney. Uh, Jai Courtney, who has been... Oh, my favourite. Yeah, who's been inserted <laughs> into X number of action movies, hoping that audiences will, will take to him, and I don't think they totally have so far. So 
this is all to say that there's just kind of too much going on. And in the end, it increasingly falls flatter and flatter as the series continues because the the Dominic West Kate Blanchett storyline is abandoned pretty early and then only seen in flashbacks so that was a hook for me and that has just has just gone and dissipated uh, then the central character who's come away from that cult we somewhat get into her psychological like disposition but there's not enough done with that to make it interesting the asylum seeker part of it and the sort of social commentary on immigration as it pertains to australia and the rest of the world it feels pretty shallow to me as someone who's not even claiming to be particularly well read in that area it still felt fairly shallow so all of this is presented as if it's quite grand quite prestige television but ends up coming off a bit like what you might see as you know an australian drama series that's navigated its way onto the Netflix platform. I do want to say just finally on this one that in it is an actress I have to check the name of if I can find her in this list of faces. I might not be able to. Uh, Rachel House is her name. Rachel House, you'll know Paul um, and probably Jack as well from uh, Hunt for the Wilder People. You know the woman in that (laughs) who looks a bit like Miss Trunchbull? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's really good in this and she's not alone in, in being a, a strong performer. It's just a shame the series just doesn't doesn't really work. The The screenplay is is patchy and a disappointment overall. Paul, what have you got for Popcorn this week? Uh, I've got a few this week, so I'm going to narrow them down to I'm going to try and stick with three, I think, this week, to be fair. So um, the first one I wanted to talk about was a film that you talked about on the last episode, Pete, which was the um, Amazon Prime exclusive. Uh, 7500 with um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the part is the co-pilot of a hijacked aeroplane um, oh my word this started out so well Pete and Jack so well this started out I would say nigh on perfect almost for the first half I was absolutely glued to the film I thought it was incredible the sound design as well needs to be shouted out here because it feels like you're in the cockpit there is no sound other than the plane sound like the attention to detail in the filming of this was incredible then it got really, really silly for a good half an hour. Like, really silly. I'm not going to spoil it here, but like ridiculous narrative decisions that did not feel true to life in the slightest. And then it got quite good again towards the end. Um, it got quite tense towards the end. But it's a shame. It was solid. I would recommend everyone watches it, but just brace yourself for some Hollywood narrative silliness, which is a bit of a shame. Aside from that, though, it is good. What was Joseph Gordon-Levitt's um, acting like? He was good in this. I thought. I thought everyone was. I thought everyone sold it. To be fair, I, I bought him as a pilot. They said it's just it's more narrative decisions like this. There's a certain moment where he it turns out he's related to one of the flight crew, which for the events of this movie is obvious why this would not be allowed in real life, and they certainly wouldn't keep it to themselves. And it's just little things like that where you go, oh, this was so like the attention to details there. It's just it's one of those films you just think, okay, that was solid, but it could have been great, um, and it wasn't far off. So it's certainly certainly check out. I'd certainly check out anything else the director does. And, but. and made for next to no money as well. I mean, it's got to be commended for that because it's very much like limited storytelling. We filmed this all in one one little room that, that doubles as a cockpit. So that stuff's cool. And like you said, the intro, Paul, the the like uh, security camera stuff that's used as this silent lead into the film, really effective. Yeah. So yeah. It's so Patrick Vollard, it's worth Volderaf directed, who is not a director I'm familiar with, but I certainly will be checking out uh, anything he does in the future because I thought, yeah, he's really well put together film. So... That was a 7500 streaming now on Amazon Prime for anyone who's got it. Um, the second one I wanted to talk about, um, I could probably do a whole podcast this, but I'm not going to. Uh, I finally watched Seven Samurai for the first time. That's right. It's one of those kind of shame films that I've never seen. I realise why I've never seen it when I sat down to watch it. It's three hours, 27 <laughs> minutes long. So that's probably why I hadn't just snuck it on before I went to bed. Um, 
And I'll be honest with you guys, another confession. It's the first time I've ever sat down and watched a Kurosawa film. So there we go. It was a day of firsts. Um, I was surprised. I mean, I loved it. It was great. It's really, really well put together. It's fully engaging for three hours, 27 minutes. The characters, the seven samurai characters are brilliant. Um, There's so many things that as soon as I was watching it, I was like, this reminds me of this. This reminds me of this. Like, I had an idea that it influenced a lot of films. I had an idea what the storyline was about, but it's nice to see it. Nice to see it in the flesh, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, to be honest, I was I was expecting. I say sl- slog is the wrong word. I was expecting a harder film to watch than I got from it. Does that does that make sense to everyone? It it was quite. It was a very pacey, quite action heavy film in places, which I wasn't expecting. It bowled along at a, a pace more akin to sort of more Hollywood blockbuster than I was expecting. So, no, I had a great time with it. It was a really, really good, um, really, really good, um, really, really good film. Um, and well deserving of its status. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, Paul, you've surely got to play Ghost of Tsushima now if you've just got to watching Kurosawa. I know, I know, but I keep buying video games and not finishing them. So I do fancy Ghost of Tsushima, but <laughs> my concern is my concern is it's going to be reskinned Assassin's Creed, but we'll see. So hard to complete <laughs> games now, isn't it? Yeah. I, I was going to say, it'd have to be for our spin-off video game podcast that's yeah. yet to Strangers launch. Strangers on a sofa. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it sounds good. Yeah. There you go. You've got the idea. Yeah. It's done. Um, yeah, no, so, yeah, Kurosawa. Yeah, I'm going to watch seek out his other films uh, post-haste, which I should have done years ago, but I didn't, so I hold my hands up in shame, but I've watched it now. Um, and the last one I want to talk about was Alexandra Ayer's Hills Have Eyes remake from 2006. Now, I remember when this came out thinking, I watched it and I was just like, shit, that was good. Um, it's not that good uh, when, when it comes to rewatch, unfortunately. I think what it was is that, don't get me wrong, there's, there's some good moments in this. There are some good moments in it. It's unapologetically gory. It's quite am- atmospheric in places. Some of it looks quite badly shot on digital now, which hasn't aged well. Um, and some of the performances are decent, don't get me wrong. But for me... <laughs> Sort of with older eyes on it now, it still doesn't do enough different from the original to really justify its existence. It's very close to the original, which, you know, I I don't see the point of remaking a film unless you're going to do something a bit different with it. This is almost too close to the original. And I think as much as it's well made in places, it's quite clumsy in others. Some of the, the final sign of set pieces are a bit clumsy. I don't think it's... For a director who I normally really like, this felt this didn't feel as technically accomplished as some of his later work has been. Um, I would say. And I think the reason it probably stood out at the time is because it was better than the glut of absolute shit remakes that surrounded it. So I don't know if you remember this time when literally you name a horror film when they remade it in the kind of early to mid 2000s. And this, I I still maintain, this is probably one of the better ones for sure out of that, certainly out of the Platinum Dunes um, glut of remakes. It's it's definitely one of the Definitely one of the better ones. But yeah, it didn't stand up quite as well as I remember it, if I'm honest. I think for me, it was that whole like French New Extremity thing at the time was just so like exhilarating. Mm. And so like high tension that he'd made before was like, shit, who is this guy? Like, I'm going to yeah, check. High tension was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to check out everything that this guy does. And he was about 26 or something at the time. And just making this stuff that would like hit you right in the stomach in like horrible, horrible ways, I guess. And so... Yeah, uh, Alex I am making uh remaking Hills Have Eyes seemed like both unnecessary and also the most necessary thing in the world for me <laughs> yeah, right yeah. then, but probably like you if I went back to it now it might not quite hold up, but at the same time I might not go back for it, to it because I might just want to keep it sort of preserved don't, in aspect I say, like I would say don't like because I think if I hadn't gone back to it I'd have said oh that that's like one of the best remakes I've seen. 
Mm. Like I would have been, I would have stood on a hill and thought it's corner. Whereas now, don't get me wrong, it's not a bad film. Like by a long stretch, there's a lot worse remakes out. There's a lot worse horrors out there. But it didn't like it didn't it didn't have the same impact as it had when I first watched it. Here's a question, Paul. Strangers decided that they're going to do uh, on this very show. Uh, this is not real. Hypothetically, that, that they're going to do um, top five uh, best horror remakes or modern era horror remakes. Does it make the top five? No. <laughs> had to think about that one though. Yeah, it it could mm. be around right that. in I'm the number six, of, number seven, put me, put me somewhere in there. Five above it. Evil Dead's got to come quite high on that list. Oh, Evil Dead was cool, man. And the uh, Blair Witch uh, remake was cool. Yeah, that was Even though it's a modern horror film remade with an even more modern remake. (laughs) Technically a sequel, but yeah, I'm not buying that as a sequel. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe top 10, but possibly not top 5. And that was three films. That's it for me for popcorn movies. Bang. Well, just like that, we were gone. Uh, But we will be back. Do not fret. We'll be back in just a moment. Paul, are we going to do Stream Team this week or not bother? Uh, No, because I haven't made a list, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I could have done this thing off air, but, you know, let's give you a peek behind the curtain. Yeah, we won't do Stream Team. The reason being, I think, uh, I'm going to retroactively suggest that I'd planned this. The reason we're not doing it and never were going to do it is because we've got three features and we want to give them adequate time for discussion. And also, uh, Jack's coming in on one of the discussions there as well so and if i may add sorry just to jump in all three of these feature reviews are available on streaming (laughs) oh dear there's a segue so we will be back in just a moment with the first of three feature reviews and we're gonna go with the king of staten island i've just decided right after this Okay, so the first film we're reviewing this week is The King of Staten Island, which is the latest uh, directorial project from Judd Apatow, um, co-written, I believe, by Pete Davidson, and is kind of a semi-autobiographical tale of his younger life. Um, Pete, do you want to take the do you want to take the plot a bit further? Am I taking it? Sure. So Pete Davidson for The Uninitiated is this guy who came up on Saturday Night Live. This is in real life. Um, On Saturday Night Live as a writer and performer on that show, uh, there were uh, highs and lows or have been highs and lows. He's still a very young man in his 20s, I believe, now, um, including a time at which he was um, found on the set of Saturday Night Live by the authorities, having posted rather scary um, sort of ominous stuff on social media relating to his own state of mind. Um, He's a guy who's struggled with with, uh, various issues uh, throughout his life and some of those or to some degree it seems some of those uh, connected with the loss of his father in a fire um, on 9-11 um, in this semi-autobiographical telling of the life of this guy uh, we get instead the backstory that his his uh, dad died in a hotel fire it's not directly related to 9-11 in the plot here and we follow the Davidson character as he tries to navigate his early 20s or a period in his early 20s where he is entirely directionless he's living at, is at home with his mother still living at home with his mother played by an almost unrecognizable Marissa Tomei more of her in due course uh, and he's not even really trying to find his way he's just trying to smoke weed with his friends uh, maybe make a bit of money if he can and try to avoid his mum getting into a relationship with a guy that he profoundly dislikes uh, this is all the setup we really need for now we'll talk more about it in detail after this little clip i love staten island it's amazing and people are gonna see it soon trust me well if you love it so much why don't you let me tattoo it on you no, I'm not going to let you tattoo me again. Fine. Well, I need somebody to tattoo. I'm, I'm running out of 
Come on, Rich, what about you, man? Don't even look at me, dude. Why? Your work is mad inconsistent. Obama ain't right. I got the eyes wrong, okay? He's not right. All right, man, this has hurt me. Right? I don't have any black friends anymore. I can't go to the barbershop no more. You got Obama wrong. Ain't nothing worse than that. What are you, Igor? You want a dragon or something? Oh, I love your tattoos. My brother, it's a spitting image. Yeah. It's my favorite. It's no, 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 this is my favorite. Oh, you killed that. Yeah, I really so worked hard on the eyes. He's so cute, I love his butthole. It reminds me that I have a belly button. So I came into this, I'll be honest, Pete, knowing very little about Pete Davidson. I had an idea this was autobiographical. I didn't know until I kind of Googled him afterwards that it, it was it was as close to the bone as it was. I'd not really seen that much of his comedy. I just kind of a, was aware of who he was and obviously aware of Judd Apatow as a director. Judd Apatow as a director is someone that regular listeners of the show will know I blow hot and cold with. He seems, for me, seems to have really good first halves to his films uh, and then kind of falls away in kind of smolts and a bit overwrought kind of closures in my experience um so it was kind of with trepidation i went into this uh i'll, I'll be honest not knowing much about pete davidson and not being a huge judd apatow fan and i'll be honest with you it's probably my favorite judd apatow film now i was very very pleasantly surprised by by all of everything i saw here pete davidson just i thought was very very good in the role i thought he played a very very likable sort of likable fuck up for want of a for want of a better word um and i thought the film just exuded humanity um and yeah i, I really really took to it <laughs> dot 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 okay I'll, I'll jump in i'll jump in here <laughs> yeah dot 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 sorry unwatchable yeah. <laughs> yeah. no uh, that's that's not my view at all i mean i wanted to say yeah on the judd apatow thing i'm kind of with you i think that judd apatow to me seems like a guy who's done incredibly well for himself and clearly worked really really hard not least in networking the hell out of the industry to to work with just incredibly talented up and coming usually young actors but also here we've got like across the spectrum you know everything from belle powley who was in uh, the diary of a teenage girl which i thought was fantastic a british actress that you wouldn't know is british watching something like this or or that or most stuff she he's done so far uh bell powley really really good but then at the other end of the scale you've got yeah marissa tomei i mentioned who's been great in the latter part of her career let's not get this twisted but at the same time here i think does really good work you've also got people that i like quite a lot like um Oh, uh, who am I thinking of? Bill Burr, stand-up comedian Bill Burr, who we've seen like on the periphery of a load of stuff. He was in The Fighter. He plays Irish-American characters, generally speaking. And he's got a very distinctive uh, tone to him, a distinctive vernacular. You know that it's Bill Burr. You can't hide him behind a moustache as they do here without us knowing immediately who this guy is and kind of what he represents. Uh, Pamela Adlin's in this, of course, uh, an actress that I've tried to talk about as much as possible on this show, who worked with Louis C.K. when we were still allowed to talk about Louis C.K. Uh, so, like, from young to old, and Pete Davidson, as you said, shouldn't pass over the guy in the lead role, although I don't know that I was blown away with him as a screen presence I found him kind of like there's a sort of there's a sort of a what's the thing like a, a kind of difficulty here if you make a film about a character who's sort of aimless and a bit carefree and a bit unfocused that the film itself is going to feel a bit aimless and unfocused and sort of carefree but not in a good way and I felt that sometimes the King of Staten Island suffered from that where events are happening but the director doesn't have like a he's not one of those directors who does this stuff particularly well the kind of slack like Linklater that we talked about earlier Richard Linklater can film dudes jerking off and doing nothing for two hours and it'll be brilliant whereas Judd Apatow I don't think can quite 
pull that off. And at times it kind of felt like Judd Apatow does grown up, maybe awards nominated film, which kind of rubbed me slightly the wrong way at times. Having said all of that, I, it was an enjoyable two hours, albeit a lot of kind of trauma and arguing and wrestling in an outdoor above ground pool and stuff. Uh, it was enjoyable. There were things to like about it, not least the performances. I guess, though, Paul, you said in your um, first summary there that Apatow's known for sort of strong beginnings and, and weaker fizzled endings. I don't, I, this does I guess that. so, but there was just Doesn't something it? about this that I... Yeah, trite. Yeah, trite. I, I would to an extent it does it, but for me it didn't feel as egregious or offensive. I watched Trainwreck about a day later, thinking maybe I like Judd Apatow films now. My God, does Trainwreck do it? Wow, does Trainwreck do it with some aplomb? Uh, and then thought, oh no, maybe I'm not watching any more Judd Apatow films for a while. I don't know. I, I don't know what it was, but I just there's something about Pete Davidson's character that I really, really liked in this. And I think, I mean, there's moments where he jokes about his dead dad, and anyone that sat down and had a drink and a smoke with me knows that I will often tell awkward jokes about my dead dad. So I took I took to that quite well, I'll be honest. Um, so I, I, there's, yeah, there's, I guess there's elements of the way Davis, the way Pete Davidson's character carried on. Scott, I think his name is in this, where I could equate to myself when I was younger to an extent. I don't know. I, I take your point, but there was something about this film, and I think it was Pete Davidson, if I'm honest, that I really engaged with. And I kind of looked past the normal things that, yeah, I'm with you. Those things are there, but they didn't bother me in this. And I... I ju- honestly, I was really surprisingly, mm. really, really taken with this film. Like, really, really taken with it. To the point, I would say, I, I came out of it, and I was mm. just like, do you know what, I love that. Like, I thought I genuinely thought, well, for all its faults, and they are there, it's not like Judd Apatow's turned a corner and changed his entire structure of his films. Um, I just didn't, those elements didn't bother me. I just got carried away with it. It it might be, and I hadn't thought of this until we're talking about it now, but it might be somewhat, my, my sort of lukewarm feeling about um, The King of Staten Island might be, somewhat um directed by having recently seen mind minding the gap um, which i talked about on this show have you caught up with that yet paul oh it's sensational and it's like very much in the wheelhouse of this movie it's not in the sense that it's a essentially a documentary film whereas Mm. obviously this is a, a, a live action drama or whatever you want to call it but um but very much in that territory of like, we don't know what to do with our lives and we're sort of 21, 22, 23, 24 years old and, you know, shit might blow up in our faces or we might figure it out somehow. Like that territory, it just does so well that I think this felt a bit like the movie maker's version of the thing that that did more authentically, which is not really maybe giving this, you know, fair a fair hearing, um, The King of Staten Island, but... Uh, yeah, the the most interesting stuff for me were yeah. things like the relationship that he has with Belle Powley, like the, her character, the way that they're uh, like, are we dating? Are we fucking? Are we best friends? Are we nothing? Or whatever Childish Gambino says, like that whole thing going through the movie, I thought was pretty well handled. And the way that that arc resolves itself, although still felt fairly trite um, and felt a bit Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, but maybe not quite as affecting if you know the bit that I'm talking about. Um That I enjoyed. Bill Burr I enjoyed. Marissa Tomei I enjoyed. It's just the sum of the parts was a bit lesser for me than it sounds like it was for you. Yeah, and I can't really argue with that, um, in all honesty. It just, as I said, something carried carried me over it. Um, And I said, that's the person I think is Pete Davidson. And then I watched his stand-up and thought, I don't really find him that funny now, which is a bit (laughs) disappointing. (laughs) So, broke my heart. Um, But no, I mean, I, I can wholeheartedly recommend it, but I don't disagree with anything you've said, I'll be honest. Well... Let's see if we can get a bit more disagreement going on the next one, because I think we're going to go three-way on this <laughs> next one, are we not, Jack? Yes, yeah, I'm going to join in on this one. 
So uh, the next review that we've got coming up is for another uh, Netflix available project. I feel like we've been talking about a lot of them recently. This one is The Old Guard starring Charlize Theron. And we'll talk about that right after this. Yeah, this is the old guard, the latest um, uh, big budget effort from Netflix to try. I would say to try and create their own superhero franchise. They definitely want a superhero franchise. There's no <laughs> doubt when you watch this, they are aching for a superhero franchise, yearning for one. One might say, certainly if you watch this. Um, this is directed by Gina Prince Blythewood, um, who apparently was once tapped to direct a Spider-Man spin-off for uh, Sony, but then um, they dropped. I think dropped out at the last minute. Or they didn't like our idea, so she ended up picking this project up. So this um, feature, this stars Charlize Theron, Kiki Lane, Matthias Schoenhart, um, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, who else have we got here as well? Um, that's pretty much the main cast. Marwin Kanzari um, as basically a group of immortals, uh, immortal soldiers who heal very quickly, much akin to Wolverine, I guess, in terms of their healing factor, heal very quickly and can't die. Um, well, they can eventually, but they're basically immortal. They take they take on military jobs that no one else wants to take on. Um, and in this film, they end up being hunted for their superpowers by one of the shittest villains ever committed to a film for quite some time. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get there in a minute. Um, before we get to your thoughts, Jack, um, let's have a clip. How are you all in my dreams? We dream of each other. They stop when we meet. It used to take years to track a new one. Booker was the last. 1812. No way. Yeah, I died fighting with Napoleon. So, you're even older than him. Nicky and I met in the Crusades. The Crusades? The love of my life was of the people I've been told to hate. <laughs> we... We killed each other. Many times, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're the oldest. Yeah. Well, how old are you? Old. How old? Too old. So we really never die. Well, what can I say about this film? <laughs> um, <laughs> good, good effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I really enjoyed the premise i thought it was it was quite intriguing okay so these soldiers can heal themselves they go into battle they've got some cool swords and they're gonna wave it around the worst thing about this film was the soundtrack oh my word i'm not sure who picked this soundtrack but it just it it spoiled the action scenes it spoiled the scenes when they met new characters. It just, it was awful. It was like someone from like the early 2000s had decided these songs would be great for this film. Um, however, I do think the acting was was okay. Some of it was pretty bland, I must admit. Um, I feel like the film was a little bit rushed um, to get out onto production for um, Netflix. Um, the one good thing I did find out about this film is that actually it's based on um, a comic from Image Comics. And you can actually read the first issue of the comic it's based on on imagecomics.com. And so that initially that was a, 
the first thing I did when I'd watched this film. I was like, there's got to be a better storyline in there somewhere. So I cracked on and pretty much read the whole entire Old Guard comic series. Um, yeah. And and is there? Like, do you think the, the comic book series for you surpassed what we got on Netflix? Massively. Um, just yeah. the imagery of the comic was exceptional. I just don't feel they managed to transfer that into the film. And that is one of the problems with comic books to movies. They never quite get it right. Um, so that was a little bit disappointing. I wish, however, I'd probably read the comics first before I'd seen the film. Um, but it's I think it's they've set it up, haven't they? Probably for more films to come onto Netflix. Certainly if it if it does decent numbers, I guess that's yeah. an inevitability. Like like Paul was saying, I mean, if you can get an a, a bona fide like Netflix superhero franchise, that's a bit of a game changer really, isn't it, for the platform. Not that they're struggling at this yeah, point. Yeah, and there's in time. been a few, All few things releases considered. recently, isn't there, on Netflix considering, you know, super people or people with superpowers. Yeah. So Yeah. Nothing that's really taken though in a sort of mass no, popularity sort of low way, budget I, I films aren't they really so is this paul is this going to do it for you like is this going to push it over the top in terms of having a real hit on there i've watched a sequel i'll be honest i was mostly pleasantly surprised with this i agree with jack on the soundtrack it's just like netflix by committee have picked this soundtrack to the most current annoying pop records pop songs you can find like <laughs> it doesn't fit the film it's desperate it just feels desperate to be edgy and it, the soundtrack is is annoying it's probably one of my biggest gripes um but at the same time, you've got Charlie Theron here. I thought was pretty good. Matthias Schoenhartz is in this. Chua Chalajefor is in this. Like you've got a decent cast here, and they were they were all quite watchable. But who who decided with an actor the caliber of Chua Chalajefor, who's been such an incredible villain in the past? Do you give it to a guy called Harry Melling, who plays the villain of Merrick, just this forgettable um, identikit, like twenty something CEO? From, he's from Harry Potter, I think. Oh, is okay, he? I thought I recognised um, him. Well, or a, something. He's a grown man just, now, but he I was just a kid. Don't, I just need a villain with some sense of threat, and this guy was just not threatening to all these kind of hard ass military types. No. In the slightest. <laughs> and we, you know, we've seen this kind of this this kid CEO thing done better. Like it, it just. I don't know. The villain was... Yeah, you need a strong villain. That's the trouble. I think you spend a lot of money on the heroes and then you forget about the villain. But then Chiwetel Ujifor has done such an incredible job in um, Serenity as the villain um, that he was superb in that. Um, And he's he's a far better actor than than certainly the guy playing the villain here. So, yeah, I thought it's tough for a weak villain. The soundtrack was terrible. But I'll be honest, I came out of it mostly enjoying it. I thought the set pieces were, were pretty good. I quite like some of the some of the, the kind of bits because they are so they're immortals so they're very old. They're kind of a Highlander, kind of a, a riff on Highlander, I guess. Um, there's some kind of clumsy flashbacks to when they're sort of kind of witches and in like the yeah. Crusades and that kind of things that I, I think probably needed a bit more money spent on them than than, the, than they were spent on them. But I for the most part I, I had a good time with this, so I'd, I'd definitely be in for a sequel. I would say for me, for the series to capture me, the sequel would need to be better than this. But I thought it was an okay entry into what could be a, a half decent franchise. Pete, what do you think? Yeah, I I listened with interest to what both of you have said, and I and I think I I basically sort of am going to sit on the fence slightly, but leaning more towards I don't like this mm. movie very much. Uh, but yeah, Jack's absolutely right, and you've seconded that, Paul. Like the the musical choices are awful. It's like they could have just given it to Evanescence, and they could have knocked <laughs> yeah. out a soundtrack for this thing. It was. 
it was sort of weird and and it kind of just added to a sense of artificiality in the movie that I didn't appreciate like it's one of those where there we've done or we've come so far with fight action choreography in in the last couple of decades that it wasn't per se that the like choreographing of moves was poor I just think the way that those sequences are shot felt like not even just hand-to-hand combat but like gunplay stuff like it just felt very much like I'm watching actors do an action scene and it's almost like I'm there on the soundstage whilst they're recording it rather than being immersed in this fully like living breathing world that I've bought into wholeheartedly um I thought uh, Kiki Lane was good in it the girl who plays uh looking desperately for her character's name in a different window help me out if you want lads uh Niall thanks the girl who plays uh Niall it's kind of cool the way they bring her Mm -hmm. in because they have this uh idea about the fact that they dream other uh what are they called undead (laughs) immortal yeah Yeah. immortals yeah yeah that they that they dream them when they come into existence or where they appear somewhere on the earth and they dream about somebody new and it's this character Niall and then there's a sequence of the movie which lasts a little while which is basically what you'd call in a video game a fetch quest to go and get this person and it invests you in the character and it makes you care a little bit about that person before she joins the team but then that goodwill for me just sort of dissipated a bit like I didn't care I forget that Matthias Schoenartz is on screen an actor that I like in in almost everything Chiwetel Ejiofor as you said Paul is a great actor and here just kind of forget that it's him I don't know the material didn't seem particularly strong Van Veronica and Go who plays Quinn in the movie was in that thing uh, Vietnamese action film Fury that I put in our best action films of whatever thing that was that we did some (laughs) 20 episodes ago Uh, and she's cool like she's a cool actress someone I look out for and again here it's just like a bit of a shrug of a movie to me and it reminded me Paul for some reason of not in terms of how it's set up or anything like that but some reason a movie that came into my head and you've got to remind me what it's called what's the one with Kurt Russell's kid in which is set in like Nazi Germany but also the future oh the one that that. I didn't like and you did um yeah out something out last no that's a video that's game, a video game. <laughs> uh yeah that one guys listen listening to this screaming at the uh audio device right now uh the outpost no maybe that was that was a outpost was outpost? a nazi film though wasn't it overlord overlord right. overlord basically overlord. outpost then. yeah similar i uh, probably preferred outpost if i remember rightly but yeah overlord yeah, Overlord. So it kind of reminded me of that in the way it's kind of like knockabout mid-action fun, like mid-budget action fun. And I I preferred that movie. I don't know. Like, you, you can go so far with me on Charlie's Theron in tight jeans, man. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm in for a long time when it comes to that aspect. But... And, and she's great, man. Like, she's creative, as we've said previously. She was great in Atomic Blonde. I didn't think Atomic Blonde was very good either, but she's really good in that movie. I think she's perfectly good here. Like, I massively commend her for establishing herself as a, a bona fide action star in her 40s as a woman. I mean, this is kind of groundbreaking territory, but the movie itself is just a bit... Bleh by the end I, I i don't know like if there was a sequel i'd watch it if theron's in it i'll watch it 100 percent. but i won't remember this film in a couple of weeks no i'd agree with that like i enjoyed it yeah i enjoyed it for what it is i would watch a sequel but yeah how memorable it is questionable to be fair uh, weirdly enough atomic bond is supposed to be getting a sequel going straight to netflix hmm, interesting i'm in, i'm in yeah. is she attached though, i believe so as far yeah as you know. yeah oh well yeah 100 yeah. percent. sign me up 
Uh, cool. Well, we'll sign you up um, as long as you keep listening, obviously. It's totally your own choice. You have free will. Uh, after the break, we'll be back with a review of our third and final feature for this week. That one is Greyhound, starring Tom Hanks from director Aaron Schneider, right after this. So, yeah, back we are with Greyhound, uh, which is uh, directed by Aaron Snyder, as Pete said just before the break. Um, this is, uh, well, very late in the day, became an Apple TV Plus uh, exclusive that Apple snapped up the rights for. So you can watch this streaming if you've got Apple TV Plus. Um, and this basically is a, well, I say a film. Uh, it, is a, it is a film, in fairness. So this film is set in the midst of World War II, uh, well, early in World War II. Um, with Tom Hanks captaining in a naval vessel called the Greyhound, which is uh, head of a convoy of ships escorting um, escorting supply ships across the Atlantic um, to the UK um, and trying to protect these ships from Nazi U-boats. Um, that's pretty much the story of the film. Um, Jack, when you're back uh, editing, give us a clip. So I think, yeah, you've done a, a pretty decent job there, Paul, of doing the setup, seeing as there is very little yeah, setup, very little uh, setup, both in yeah. terms of how, how you explain this premise to someone and also how the film presents itself. We've got a film bookended by fleeting glances of the face of Elizabeth Shue. Uh, there's probably a little conversation to be had there about the way that certain female characters in movies like this get so sidelined that all they get to do is have a meal at the beginning of the film and then smile <laughs> into the middle distance at the end of the film. And that apparently makes them you know second top billing in the cast uh, also here we've got Stephen Graham who's certainly higher billed in terms of actual screen time uh, being that he is on board the naval ship uh, headed by Tom Hanks and then a host of supporting uh, cast uh, some of them pretty young as you would expect in uh, uh, naval crew is that what you call it yeah. naval crew I don't know yeah uh, but yeah as you've said Paul we're on a boat we're on a boat for the duration of the film, pretty much. And from that, we are offered uh, a fairly high tension, uh, fairly realistic 
telling and portrayal of what it might be like to be under attack from this wolf pack of um, the enemy, of Nazi U-boats in a wolf pack that were basically hunting and killing the ships that were making these, trying to make safe passage across the Atlantic to deliver supplies to the Allies and so on. Um, yeah, I mean... There's more to say about it than that, Paul, but kick us off. Like, What what for you sort of makes this work or not work within its own parameters? It's, We've established what it is. It's a really interesting one because as I was thinking, as I was watching it, and I, as it kind of wrapped up, I was just like, what I didn't like about that is what Pete is exactly the same criticisms everyone levels at Mad Max Fury Road. And I go, well, it doesn't matter because it looks so good. Um, so this is, and this made me think, what's the differences here? So I, in short, I thought this was okay. For my for my money, it's a ninety it's a ninety minute set piece. It doesn't really feel like a film necessarily. There's not really any notable character development. You're kind of just like here's 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 textbook cardboard cutout military men doing military things. There's some things blowing up. Here's some battle. Uh, there's the end. And it did very much feel like a ninety minute set piece. Um, but I just I don't know. I just I just didn't engage with the characters. I don't think the set the set pieces were fine as they go but i could tell i was watching cgi for some of it although the effects weren't bad but i don't know just this film i feel like i feel like i wanted if you're gonna have a 90 minute set piece movie like this then it needs the set pieces need to be better than this i would say any thoughts pete yeah i mean the 90 minute thing's interesting isn't it because when i saw prestige world war ii drama or at least that's the perception that i had and then you see tom hanks very much you know that's the name on the poster yeah. in my mind there is not a chance that this runs less than two hours no agreed and then and then finding that it's a 90 minute film it, it's almost like its own small alarm bell to mm. me like what what's the deal here and i understand that we're in a sort of limited storytelling environment we're not going to shift off the boat and that's fine although that is a decision i mean there could have been more at the front end i mean there's nothing set up here no, i mean there is there is tom hanks talks to his wife this is the mission that he's got to go on this will be his first trip across the atlantic he's going to do it that's his duty here we are on the ship that is the whole set less set up than fury road i guess isn't there to be fair <laughs> yeah yeah there, there absolutely is and then on the ship itself there's very little world building in terms of as you were saying, like character development, getting to know these lads and like the way that they actually interact with each other before it's like all hands on deck, we're being attacked, we need to react instantaneously. And like as a study of what it might feel like to some extent and very much from arm's length to be in a situation like that, it was relatively effective, I felt. Um, and as you say, Paul, the, the set pieces are serviceable here, but certainly not thrilling and i mean that's a departure i think if we talk about the mad max comparison the you know driving through the desert for two hours i think it's a fair comparison though i'm not going mad no i I? do yeah yeah no no i do but i think that it it is an unfavorable comparison when we think about this movie because and for specific reasons because the action here is is fine and the the events that are happening we know have high stakes and we know that these have real world stakes unlike what's going on at least literally what's going on on screen in Mad Max. But there we've got thrill and we've got um, sort of nail-biting stuff and we've got like life or death decisions that feel like they are that. And here it felt a bit run-of-the-mill. And that's and that's really a dangerous sort of statement to bandy around, but a more dangerous thing to allow your war film to be because I think then we just sort of nod and say like, oh yeah, you know, another fine entry into the World War II thing. And 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 the further that continues, the more that our 
collective sense of World War Two, for example, becomes this sort of hazy, you know, blancmange of of the way it's been depicted on screen. And I mean, this is what the fourth Tom Hanks movie that's set during World War Two, I think. Yeah, um, and I just think if you look at the caliber of some of the other ones that he's made set during World War Two, this doesn't hold a candle to them, unfortunately. And I think. Yeah, the 90-minute thing is bizarre. I don't know whether there's more of this film on the cutting room floor somewhere or whether they've cut it down for the running time for Apple TV Plus or or what's gone on, but it it just feels weird. It, it almost felt like the end of a film, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, or like or like a really like vicious editor has just said, we can take a 90-minute project no longer. Oh, we've got a two-and-a-half-hour film. Well, deal with it. Do you it. think yeah. um, that... Because it was on Apple TV Plus, so they just rushed it to get it out. No, because they uh, it was finished, and I think Apple TV Plus picked it up for quite a large sum because it was going to it was due to come out of the cinema. Um, it wasn't made for Apple TV Plus, but with all the delays um, with the COVID situation, um, my under certainly I might be wrong, but my understanding is that Apple TV Plus picked it up um, after it was ready, after it was finished. So um, I don't think that's necessarily the reason for the for the short running time, okay. but. Yeah, it just it feels like it was lacking weight, to be honest. Um, in, in especially in terms of like in the way it the way it presents itself, the way it does the the tech, the sort of the important text at the beginning, the text at the end. It thinks it, it definitely has ideas that it's an important film, um, but it doesn't feel like one. Okay. Mm. So um, yeah. yeah, if you know if you were gonna re- would you recommend it to someone that likes that type of history, is really into uh, this? Watch sort of your dad history? will love it. I guarantee your dad will have every minute of the 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say also that it's hard to to bypass for me the the sort of the Tom Hanks issue. Um, Mm. uh, Maybe that's too strong of a way to put it. But have we not got our fill now of Tom Hanks does stoic Mm. commander of thing? that has to act stoically against insurmountable odds. I mean, between this and Captain Phillips and the Hudson River movie with the plane, that one? Oh, Sully. Sully, right, yeah, forgot about it. Uh, And all perfectly fine. You know, obviously we all agree Tom Hanks is a really good actor at this point. And I don't mean to be dismissive, but at the same time, there's a lot of looking into the middle distance now tom we want you to convey with your eyes a little bit of dread now a little bit of regret now a little bit of guilt now you've got concern about one of the guys on the crew because that will be a sort of emotional heart to the movie and and all of it felt a bit like you said sort of half done or half-hearted or not entirely convincing and and it's such a shame because some of those little moments that you have where there's a particular tracking shot of a torpedo approaching the vessel and we've got the shot from the angle from the reverse angle from under the water a sense of mounting tension the decisions being made in the moment like this should be exhilarating sort of white knuckle stuff but the momentum is lost I think and we're kind of just going through the motions at times um, which is a, a shame a disappointment. A disappointing way to end our triple bill, really. We promised a lot and we've delivered uh, in the end a disappointment, but hopefully not in the way that we've dissected these things. And of course, if people have their own views and want to tell us that this is an excellent movie or maybe you're a bigger naval action film starring Tom Hanks fan than we are, then get in touch. Uh, ditto for the other two features that we had today or anything else that's on your mind related to the show, for good or bad. Uh, other than that, lads, are we going to do a little bit of a final credit section? Do you guys have any anything to give credit to before we bow out yeah i do um go for it leeds united got promoted today 
the first time in the Premier League since I was 12 years old, so 2004. Are you a Leeds I fan? I am a Leeds fan, yeah. I, they, they were the only football club I ever followed for two years at school oh, wow. and I picked them out of a sticker <laughs> album because I was getting bullied for not liking a football yeah, team. So um, I picked them out of a sticker album. It's quite a and difficult I'm a big fan team of Tony to Yeboah. tell someone that you support <laughs> as well because people are just yeah. like, oh, why? Um, but yeah, obviously they were massive back in the early 2000s and 90s. David O'Leary days. So, uh, yeah. Did you did you watch the documentary? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh, you've got to watch. There's a lead season documentary from last season when they just missed out on promotion. Yeah, it's really good. Happened to them so many times that it sort of just washed by, really. But, okay, I'll check that yeah. out. Paul, any credits this week? I've been playing a brilliant game, which is available on, I believe it's on iPhones as well, actually. It's just come out of Switch quite recently called What the Golf. If anyone hasn't played What the Golf recently, it's brilliant. It's a... Very silly game, a series of mini games uh, purported to be made by developers who've never played golf because they found it boring. Um, so check out the trailer for What the Golf. It's the most bizarre game. It's one of the most bizarre games I've played in a while. Um, you kind of, instead of golf, you are like footballs or you end up being the person that holds the golf club or houses or barns or goalposts or that kind of thing. And you're basically trying to get to the end of a, a crazy golf course, but it's great if you haven't played it. So check out What the Golf. Uh, it's on iPhone and Switch, I think, at the moment. Nice. Yeah, I don't know. I might be a, a bit of a loss this week. I wanted to say something really niche after what Jack said about Leeds, which was already fairly niche. Uh, so I'll <laughs> I'll keep it there. Uh, my my de, de facto football team. I mean, I, I I've got to be honest. Like hands up. I have two football teams. I support two football teams. It's fine. When I was a young boy, I was very lonely. I needed a football team to watch on my own. And the ones that were on TV were sort of top flight teams. I support Arsenal. But in recent years, I've become a pretty avid fan of my local team, which is Cheltenham Town. And I don't know if the greater podcasting listening world uh, are aware of this. I would expect not. But Cheltenham Town threw away a two goal lead in the playoffs to lose 3-2 uh, overall, 3-0 at home in front of an empty stadium, of course, with the coronavirus situation. And so it was just such a heart-rending like, moment in the last few weeks that I've tried not to mention uh, again since then because it was awful. But today we got the announcement that um, we have a new shirt design for next season which is quite spiffy quite nice and it was coupled with a video which I'm going to be honest Paul and both you and I say this quite often on the show it brought a little tear to my eye because what they'd done was a, a kit reveal montage but instead of just focusing on the football side they focused on the country and particularly the town uh, Cheltenham and what it's been like with the end of the season with coronavirus with everything closing down with the pitches being empty the stadiums abandoned and so on and it was really quite a moving little piece of work. So props to the press team from Cheltenham Town. You know, they're working on a minimal budget. They produce something quite nice. Check it out. It's available on YouTube or like their website or whatever. No one's going to watch it. But if you did, it might move you to tears, you cold hearted people. So, uh, yeah, Cheltenham Town have got a new shirt. I'll never recommend anything like this ever again, I promise. Uh <laughs> Apart from that, Paul, I guess it's just social media and then we can It get is, it. yes. You can find us on Twitter at Strangers Cinema, Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook. And um, uh, the email address, which is clogged up to the ca- accounts I have completely forgotten about, is strangersinacinema at gmail.com. So uh, check us out there. Obviously, if you like the show, then like it and or subscribe and recommend us to your friends. Uh, and we'll be back in a week or so-ish. <laughs> All right. See you then. Shut up and sit down.